Today, we are precisely one year away from the next presidential election on November 3rd, 2020. As we are drawn inexorably into politics in this coming electoral season, I offer the periodic reminder that as a UU congregation, we can be political, but not partisan. Sometimes there's confusion, actually, in both directions. I'm occasionally asked, how can we be political if there is a separation of church and state? The separation of church and state, by all means, is a tremendously good idea. I'm all for it, but it doesn't actually mean that religion and government have nothing to do with one another. In the language of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. So on the government side, it is unconstitutional to choose an official state religion that gets special treatment. The First Amendment continues regarding religion that congregation shall also make no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So here on the religion side, we are free to follow the dictates of our conscience. One of my touchstones for understanding the proper relationship of church and state is from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote that a religious community must be reminded that it is not the master or servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. Being the conscience of the state, that feels pretty UU. King continued, it must be the guide and the critic of the state, but never its tool. And if it does not recapture its prophetic zeal, religious communities will become irrelevant social clubs without moral and spiritual authority. From this perspective, if we're honest, we UUs are clearly political. Even a cursory glance at our UU principles shows the need to be engaged in the political process if we are to help build the world we dream about. There's no way to reach things like the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all if you're just going to sit quietly on the sidelines and not try to influence politics. And historically, many of our forebears were active in movements for social change, from abolitionism to women's suffrage, from the civil rights movement to the struggle for same-sex marriage rights. But remember that key distinction. We are political, but not partisan. Individually, of course, many of us are supporters of particular political parties and particular political candidates. But collectively, as a congregation, we neither endorse candidates nor support political parties. Within our big tent of Unitarian Universalism, we are on much firmer ground when we focus on the values that we all have in common. Our motivation to join all those diverse and historic struggles for social justice that I just mentioned, they all share the same core values, that every human being has inherent worth and dignity, that we should treat each other with justice, with equity, with compassion, and that we should side with love. 
So in the coming election years, we're increasingly bombarded with particular candidates and particular parties vying for our attention and energy. One of the touchstones that might be helpful to you is the following set of suggested questions for candidates for public office that are drawn from our UU principles. If any of you experiment with asking real live politicians these questions, let me know how it goes. I'll be interested to hear. Questions like, how do your policy proposals reflect the inherent worth and dignity of every person? If elected, how will your decisions demonstrate your commitment to justice, to equity, to compassion and human relations? How will you encourage acceptance across party lines? What insight from your own searches for truth and meaning guide you as a political leader? What are your ideas for improving our democratic process? Within our international community, how will you work effectively to build a world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all? Acknowledging our global interdependence, how will your decisions impact our planet and future generations? And what specific actions will you take and support to accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions and to build a diverse, multicultural society? For now, on this Sunday one year before the next major election day, I would like to invite us to go a little deeper, particularly on that fifth question drawn from our fifth principle. Keeping in mind Dr. King's challenge for us to be the conscience of the state, what does it mean in such a time as this to advocate for what our fifth UU principle calls the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process, both in our congregations and in society at large? And reflecting on that question, one of the most helpful resources I found recently is Stephen Levinsky's and Daniel Zablot's powerful and accessible book with the quite sobering title of How Democracies Die. Levitsky and Zablot are both professors of government at Harvard University, and for most of their careers, they've been teaching and writing and researching about historic dangers to democracy. Some of their uh, areas of interest are Europe in the 1930s and Latin America in the 1970s, as well as new forms of contemporary authoritarianism around the world. They now have a new spe special, which is America in the late 2010s. Until the last few years, though, they never anticipated asking if democracy is in danger here in the United States. They had trust previously in the strong support of our democratic traditions and institutions, our constitution, our national creed of freedom and equality, our historically robust middle class, our high levels of wealth and education, our large and diversified um, private sector. All of these help in secure our democracy. But serious warning signs have started to appear. In their words, American states, which were once praised by the jurist Louis Brandeis as laboratories of democracy, are in danger of becoming laboratories of authoritarianism. As those in power rewrite electoral rules, redraw constituencies, and even redesign voting rights to ensure that they never lose. And in 2016, for the first time in U.S. history, a man with no experience in public office, little observable commitment to constitutional rights, and clear authoritarian tendencies was elected president. To be clear up front, I will not be trying to parse the uh, impeachment investigation this morning. You have the Washington Post for that, 
and other media outlets. And for anyone wondering, I actually planned this sermon in June. I plan all my sermons in June for the year. Uh, this is my annual UU Fifth Principle Sermon on Democracy that I do around Election Day every year. And there's almost nothing I'm saying this morning that I would have said differently if I had preached this sermon five months ago. It's not just bad now, it's been bad for a while. And although partisan politics are appropriately out of bounds, threats to our democracy are very much in play. One classic guide for protecting democratic norms is a small but seminal book published in 1978 titled The Breakdown of Democratic Regimes by the late Juan Lentz. He, for many years, was professor of sociology and political science at Yale. He died about six years ago. Born in Weimar, Germany, and raised amidst um, Spain's civil war, Lentz knew all too well the perils of losing a democracy. And he laid the foundations for an authoritarian, uh, an authoritarian litmus test for determining is a politician acting liberally or illiberally, democratically or anti-democratically. According to political scientists, there is significant cause for concern if any politician does even one of the following four things. Rejects in word or action the democratic rules of the game. Denies the legitimacy of opponents. Tolerates or encourages violence. Indicates a willingness to curtail the civil liberties of opponents, including the media. These are things that political scientists have been looking at for decades, not re just recently. If you're curious to learn more, Zavinsky and Zablot's book, How Democracies Die, goes into uh, much further details about what, each of they, what they mean by each of those four categories. They also detail in ways we need to be direct and honest about that President Trump has met all four criteria of the litmus test. To list only a few highlights, President Trump has shown a weak commitment to the democratic rules of the game. He has repeatedly questioned the legitimacy of the electoral process and made the unprecedented suggestion that he might not accept the results of the 2016 election. Two, he denied his opponent's legitimacy both through his birther conspiracy theories about President Obama and through repeatedly declaring that Hillary Clinton, quote, has to go to jail and chanting lock her up. Three, candidate Trump repeatedly encouraged violence, emboldening supporters who physically assaulted reporters and responding to protesters at his rallies by inciting violence among his supporters. Fourth and finally, he has also regularly shown a readiness to curtail the civil liberties of his rivals and his critics. I hope I'm being clear that irrespective of partisan political differences, these are anti-democratic, uncivil actions that are neither normal nor ever acceptable in this country. With the exception of Richard Nixon, you may have heard of him, no major um, party presidential candidate has ever met one of these four criteria in the last century. No other major presidential candidate in modern history, including Nixon, has demonstrated such a weak commitment to constitutional rights and democratic norms. I should also add one other significant factor, President Trump's uh, compulsive lying and rampant use of Orwellian disinformation. 
He recently passed his 1,000th day in office, and according to Fact Checker's database that's used by the Washington Post, the latest count is that he has made 13,435 false or misleading claims during his time as president of the United States. From the start of his presidency, he has averaged nearly 14 false or misleading claims per day. To be honest, this rate of exaggerated numbers, of unwarranted boasts and outright falsehoods, it's exhausting. And that is part of the point. I could continue, but I want to emphasize not only the real and present danger to our democracy, but also why it is vital, nevertheless, to remain hopeful. If you're in search of some hope in such a time as this, one among many sources I'd recommend is a book by Re Rebecca Solnit. It was actually uh, published in the wake of the Iraq War. Uh, it's called Hope in the Dark. It's quite profound. Now, I'll readily admit that hope, wrongly understood, it can seem naive, like unwarranted um, optimism. False hope can make you want to scream, don't you see how bad it is? Hope is not a belief that everything was, is, or will be fine. There is no guarantee of a better future. Our 19th century Unitarian forebears used to talk about progress onward and upward forever. But then World War I happened. Then the Holocaust happened. And we realized that there, that was not necessarily going to be the case. But if we give up hope and even the possibility that things could change for the better, we have capitulated our power to corrupt powers that be and have lost already. The Brazilian educator Paulo Ferreira is best known for his paradigm-shifting book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, a powerful book if you've never read it. But for our current situation, his lesser-known follow-up may be more instructive. It's titled, A Pedagogy of Hope. Here's one crucial quote from, this, from that book. He writes, without a minimum of hope, we cannot so much as start the struggle. And without the struggle, hope dissipates. It loses its bearing and turns into hopelessness, and hopelessness can turn into a tragic despair. Hence the need, he says, for an education in hope. I love that idea of committing to give ourselves an education in hope. Here's the thing, no one really knows what the future holds. And we do ourselves and our forebears a disservice when we forget how much unlikely change has already happened. I'm going to talk more about that next week, as I mentioned. There's no, there was no guarantee that abolitionists would win the struggle to end slavery in the 19th century, that suffragettes would win the right to vote for women in the early 20th century, that the freedom riders were the one that were going to come out on top in the civil rights struggle, that lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, um, plus students, I mean, people, citizens of this country, that they would achieve same-sex marriage rights. We can do hard things. But in each age, those who benefit from the way things are would like you to believe that the way things are, the status quo, that it is immutable, that it is inevitable that things are the way they are and that they are invulnerable to change. But none of that is true. Everything changes. The only real guarantee is impermanence. As you sometimes hear in meditation circles, whatever has the, nat the nature to arise, pleasant 
unpleasant, neutral, whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. Whatever is the case, this too shall pass. Change is going to come, but our invitation, our call, our challenge is to influence the direction in which the change happens to help bend the arc of the universe toward justice. Consider this quote from Vaclav Havel, written from a jail cell where he had been unjustly imprisoned in Czechoslovakia for writing dissident literature. A few years later, that same man would be elected president of Czechoslovakia, but sitting in that jail cell, there was no guarantee that that future victory was ever going to come. And from that cell, he wrote this, the kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that seem particularly hopeless, such as prison, he says, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. Hope is not prognostication. It is an orientation of the spirit an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and it is anchored somewhere beyond the horizon. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well. If things are going well, you don't need hope. It's not a willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success. If it's obviously headed for, his, for early success, you don't need hope. Hope. Hope is an ability to work for something because it is good, not because it necessarily stands a chance of succeeding. As you use, we are called to give ourselves our lives, our time, our energy in the struggle for human dignity, the struggle for justice, equity, compassion, peace, liberty, democracy, not because we're guaranteed to achieve those goals, but because they are good, they are true and they are right. Over the last few years, as our core values have been increasingly under threat, one of my guides has been the frequently prescient Sarah Kinzior. Does anybody read her stuff? See just a few hands. She's incredible. She's a journalist with an academic expertise on authoritarianism. The focus of her, her doctoral dissertation quite a few years ago was how the Uzbekistan dictatorship employed the internet to undermine public trust in and manipulate the media. So let's say she has quite the skill set for connecting the dots here in the current events in the U.S. On November 18th, 2016, 10 days after the most recent presidential election, Sarah Kinzior wrote a powerful essay seeking to draw on what have I learned from studying totalitarianism in the states that were formerly part of the Soviet Union for what we can do to counter a growing authoritarianism here in the U.S. I'll share with you just a brief excerpt of her wisdom for such a time as this. She says, write this down. You can do this. You can all go home later and write this down. She says, write down what you value. Write down the standards, the core standards that you hold for yourself and others. Write about your dreams for the future and your hopes for your children. Write about the struggle of your ancestors and how the hardships they overcame shaped and made possible the person you are today. Because you still have your freedom, so use it. There are many groups, she says, organizing for both resistance and even just basic subsistence. But we are heading into dark times and you need to be your own light. 
Do not accept brutality and cruelty as normal, even if it is sanctioned. Protect the vulnerable and encourage the afraid. If you are brave, stand up for others. If you cannot be brave, and it is often hard to be brave, be kind. Most of all, never lose sight of who you are and what you value. That's why you need to write it down, she says. If you find yourself doing something that feels questionable or wrong a few months or years from now, find that essay you wrote on who you are and read it. Ask if that version of yourself would have done the same thing. If the answer is no, if what you find yourself doing is a violation of your core values, don't do it or stop doing it. So we try to remind ourselves of the best angels of our nature in such a time as this. Let's rise in body or spirit. Let's sing together hymn 121, We'll Build a Land. <laughs>